It's good to be gathered this evening so that we can hear uh, the reading and the preaching of God's Word. And so if you would please open your Bibles to uh, Psalm 48, Psalm 48, and we'll be looking at uh, this chapter of Scripture for this evening's message. So Psalm 48. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Psalm 48, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your might, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer before we get into the message. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would clear the eyes of our faith, that you would enable us to see the Lord Jesus Christ here on the pages of Holy Scripture. We ask that in so doing, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would show us, O Lord, our need to repent of sins, to set aside our idols to rely less upon ourselves and more upon Christ by the power of your spirit, that in doing all of these things, O Lord, you would bring glory to your name and glorify yourself in the midst of your church. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever we think of books, I suspect just the very mention of that would bring a number of various images to mind. Uh, Perhaps you would think of a nice... uh, a hard back sewn binding book, or maybe a paperback, or these days we might bring to mind a digital book, something that you would read, say, on a tablet or perhaps upon your phone. But uh, 19th century novelist Victor Hugo, author of uh, Les Miserables, The Three Musketeers and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, among other novels, argued that medieval architects, medieval architects in France wrote books written on pages of granite. They wrote books written on pages of granite. And that the, the, the buildings of medieval Paris communicated a message, a message that he said was written in stone. Architecture, for example, we can say in this vein, is laden with symbolism, with ideas and messages If you consider, for example, the building of the United States Supreme Court, it's littered with statues, with carvings, with images, 
and words that have been etched into the walls, such as equal justice under the law, which is a message that adorns the western facade of that building. You can walk around these buildings and you can read them, if you will, as you would read pages in the book. Well, the psalmist calls us to read the book that was written in the very architecture of Jerusalem itself, of Zion, the holy mountain of God. Jerusalem, in the biblical time, contained a message written in its architecture, and the psalmist calls us to gaze upon the various structures around the city that we might give praise to God. Ultimately, Jerusalem's message heralds the gospel of Christ, a message of God's covenant faithfulness and his love throughout the ages. And so what we want to do is we, there's a sense in which we want to kind of close our eyes, if you will, so that we can walk through the streets of Jerusalem with the psalmist so that we can give thought to the various structures and the various features that he points out. But what we want to do is first, we want to think about the earthly Jerusalem, because there's a sense in which while the author starts with the earthly Jerusalem, there are a number of things that we can see in the passage that would perhaps put questions into our mind as to whether or not the author actually has the earthly Jerusalem in mind. So we want to ask first, is it the earthly Jerusalem that he has in mind before us? But then secondly, we want to give thought to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is where he ultimately sets our eyes. And then third and finally, we want to give thought to the image that he speaks of here when he writes of Zion or the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. So the earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and then the heavenly Jerusalem come down. So let's give thought first to what the author has to say here about the earthly Jerusalem. And I think the immediate impression that we get is that the psalmist focuses our attention upon the earthly Jerusalem. I think this makes the most immediate sense because there are a number of geographic references that seemingly pointing us, point us in this direction. Verse 1, the city of our God, writes the psalmist, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Or verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad. Verse 13, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Okay, so there's a sense in which we undoubtedly begin in the streets of the earthly Jerusalem during the time of the psalmist. And the psalmist draws our attention to the various features there in the city. Go around Zion, he says, number her towers. These ostensibly would be the towers that comprised the city walls. Consider well her ramparts, he says, go through her citadels. In other words, go through the fortress of Jerusalem. But as we walk these streets, at least in our mind's eye at this point, he draws our attention to the centerpiece of Jerusalem, which is the temple of God. Verse 9, we have, uh, though, uh, so we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. So he draws us into the heart of the city. 
Now, a question I suspect that perhaps might uh, visit our minds as we meditate upon this text is that, okay, the psalmist draws our attention to the earthly Jerusalem. That seems to be abundantly clear. And yet, perhaps a small annoying fact begins to raise our attention. The fact that the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Doesn't that fact perhaps, and I'll underscore perhaps, does not that fact perhaps empty the significance out of this psalm? To put it in more colloquial terms, does it, doesn't it let all the air out of the balloon as it goes shooting across the room? How impregnable can Zion's walls, towers, and ramparts and fortresses be if Israel's enemies raise them to the ground? How can the people of God dwell in the light of God's steadfast love if the Babylonians reduce the city to rubble? How can the people of God rejoice in the mighty fortress of Zion in the face of the stark reality that God's enemies conquered the holy city. Now, in our day, Israel, the nation-state, has reestablished the city of Jerusalem. So we might say, ah, look, there, there is some sign of hope that despite the Babylonian destruction of the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem still lives on because it's been reestablished. But even then, as we're probably likely familiar with present-day Jerusalem, that only the smallest of fragments of the temple still remains there in what's known as the Wailing Wall. That's the only port part of that, that, that temple. And even then, it's the Herodian Temple, not the Solomonic Temple. It's only that one part of the Herodian Temple that remains. And in fact, the Dome of the Rock one of Islam's chief holy sites, stands on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been besieged 23 times. It's been attacked 52 times. And it's been recaptured 44 times in biblical history up to the present day. So as much as we want to begin in the earthly Jerusalem, these facts alone should cause us to ask the question, is the earthly Jerusalem the sole focus of our gaze? Is this what the psalmist wants, to look, wants us to look upon, which are the ramparts, the towers, and the fortress of the earthly Jerusalem? And I think the answer to that question is no. I think ultimately what he wants us to do is he wants us to think about the earthly Jerusalem in all of its features, but he is telling us that the earthly Jerusalem should cause us to think of the heavenly Jerusalem, which brings us to our second point. Victor Hugo spoke volumes when he said that the medieval city of Paris was a book written on pages of granite. He said that the different buildings said something about the people. Architects 
in that day, in the Middle Ages, were writing a message with the very layout of the city, but especially what was the centerpiece of Paris but the cathedral at Notre Dame. That famous cathedral, which, as we know, a number of years ago almost went up in, in flames. And so it's supposedly, I think, is being rebuilt. But back in medieval Paris, it was the idea that here, this very cathedral was supposed to be at the very center of the life of the city. A message that architects were writing on pages written in granite that said, the worship of God is the most significant thing that is supposed to occupy the life, the heart, and the minds of the inhabitants and the dwellers of this city. Well, the same thing holds true for Old Testament Israel. When God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, and then later the people of God, the Solomonic Temple, he was writing a book. He was writing a message in stone in the Solomonic Temple. Jerusalem was the capital city of the nation, not because of its geography, not because of the uniqueness of its citizens or its political value, but because it was the home of the dwelling place of God. It was the home of the temple of the living God. When God planted his temple in Jerusalem, he was inviting the Israelites to read the book that he had written in the stones of the temple. As the Israelites looked to the ramparts of the city, the towers, the citadels, and the fortress, these stones would remind Israel of God's faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. They would, I suspect, have remembered Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which was the eventual Jerusalem, and the blessings that he gave to Abraham the forefather of the Israelite nation in Genesis chapter 14. They would have brought to memory David's conquest of the Jebusites, the previous inhabitants of the city, as a continuation of the conquest of the promised land. God promised to give them the land. David conquered the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So they would have brought these things to memory thinking about God's faithfulness to the Israelite people. They would recognize that Jerusalem was the capital city because it was the home of the temple, the earthly meeting place that was for God and his people. As the Israelites contemplated the Temple Mount, it was the holiest of all the places in the Promised Land, the holiest of all the places in Jerusalem. They would undoubtedly remember that the Temple Mount was the place where God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain of the Lord in Genesis twenty-two fourteen. This was the very site of Solomon's temple. As they would behold the temple, they would look at its layout and they would think about the outer court. They would think about the bronze sea, which was this massive bronze basin that was the size of a small swimming pool into which the priests would have entered. They would have washed themselves. They would have prepared themselves. They would have cleansed themselves in order to enter into the temple to serve God. They would have been able to behold the sacrificial altar. They would have undoubtedly smelled the sacrifices as they rose to heaven. 
You see, in our day, when you smell cooking meat, that brings certain things to mind. You think, hey, lunch. You know, you think, hmm, that, that smells really good. You know, and, and I suspect that the, the, the higher the quality, the better the thoughts. You know, you drive by a Burger King and you think, okay, that smells pretty good. You drive by uh, somebody that's maybe smoking a brisket and you think, hey, that's really good. But for us, we think food, for the Israelites, they wouldn't have first and foremost thought of food. They would have thought sacrifice, reconciliation, God's mercy, God's promises of salvation. They would have been able to behold the temple which I know that there are the various wonders of the world, these many structures that architects have built throughout the ages, whether we're talking about the Taj Mahal, whether we're talking about uh, the, um, the Great Wall of China, or any number of significant structures that we can observe. But at this particular point, they would have beheld the temple in Jerusalem as the sign of God's benevolence and mercy and grace in their midst. And while most Israelites would not have been allowed to even look upon it, let alone walk into it, they also would have thought about the Holy of Holies because there in the very heart of the temple was the throne of the living God, where God was enthroned between the cherubim uh, upon the Ark of the Covenant. In all of these architectural features, God was preaching the message of his gospel, written in the stone of the temple, in the stones of the city. He would have been saying to them that salvation comes only by drawing nigh unto God through his appointed sacrificial means. Only a perfectly holy man could enter into the Holy of Holies and have communion, be it ever so briefly, uh, with the one true living God. But the temple, a book written in stone, conveyed two important messages in addition to this. The temple was not a building that the Israelites constructed on their own in their efforts to reach the heavens. The temple was by no means the Tower of Babel, something that came from the imagination and the idolatrous heart of sinful people. Rather, this was something that God said, I give you the plans for this edifice. You are to build it according to these specifications. In other words, the temple in the heart of Jerusalem was God's presence come down from heaven in the midst of his people. It was not that God's people were somehow scaling the heavens in order to enter into into God's presence. So secondly, this means that the temple was heaven come down to the earth. As the Israelites contemplated the temple's designs... God's intention was to draw their minds heavenward. David writes in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, I had it in my heart to build a house uh, of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. He wanted to build a house for God. And so what the temple represented is heaven come down to earth. God condescending to us. God reaching out to us. God in his mercy enabling us to enter into his presence because he comes down. And so what this means is that as we look upon 
the features of the earthly Jerusalem, even though the earthly Jerusalem is gone in the biblical sense. We are not ultimately supposed to think of the brick and mortar of Jerusalem, but rather what the psalmist is doing is he is ultimately drawing the eyes of our faith heavenwards as we think of the heavenly Zion, as we think of the city of God, as we think of the throne of God. Because remember, what was it that God told Moses atop Mount Sinai when he brought him up to be in his presence? And he said, here, I want you to build the tabernacle based upon the patterns that you see up here. So the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly tabernacle were never the end goal. These were simply temporary placeholders that were meant for God to tell the people, this is kind of what my kingdom looks like. This is kind of what my city looks like. If you want to see what it ultimately looks like, only the eyes of faith can give you a glimpse of its glory. And ultimately, only by the gospel of Jesus Christ can you not only enter into the heavenly city, but only then through the resurrection of the dead by entering into my presence can you walk through its gates and forever dwell in my presence. And so this brings us to our third and final point, which is Zion come down. As Psalm 48 draws our eyes heavenward, we should recall that God has come down to us, not in a building, but in a person, in the person of his son. As Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19, that he is the temple of God. And so now God no longer writes books on pages of stone as he did with Solomon's temple, but rather now he is writing uh, books, if you will, with living stones as he writes his love on the hearts of the lives of his precious saints. As Paul writes, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following, when he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's us, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may not have recognized it, but as you're reading this, and the psalmist gives it to us in the architecture of the earthly Jerusalem and of the temple, he's ultimately recounting to us a shadowy image of the church of Jesus Christ, founded upon Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's ultimately calling our attention not to the earthly Jerusalem, but to the heavenly Jerusalem come down in Christ to his church. This is why Jesus come down, the temple of God, the new Jerusalem, Zion come down, incites fear and trembling in the hearts of the wicked. 
verses 3 and 4. For behold, the kings assembled. They came, to get, came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. What do the wicked do in the sight of the righteous judge come down? They're terror-stricken. They're terror-stricken. Whenever sinners encounter the holy presence of God, there's one of two reactions. There's either the reaction of utter terror, fear, and hatred, which causes them to lash out. They either lash out in violence or they flee in terror. What is it that the book of Revelation describes the very presence of Christ come down and that the wicked cry out for the mountains to come down upon them because they know there is no place to hide. There's nowhere to go. You know, this may not be the best comparison because I do not mean in any way to demean the, the, the remnants of the image of God in unrepentant sinners. But it's like when you go into an old decrepit house or an apartment and you turn on the lights and as soon as you turn on the lights, all of the roaches flee and go scampering off to hide back in the darkness. That's the reaction of the wicked. They flee, they scamper off, they are terror-stricken because they know they're in the presence of a holy God who will judge them. I think this is one of the reasons as to why in our own day, so many in the world react with anger and hatred and vitriol for the church. When things don't go their way, say for example in the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned, they strike out in anger. They strike out in fear because they see their wickedness is being uncovered. It's being revealed. And so this is why they take off in panic, according to verses 3 and 4. They take off in flight. They tremble. They are in anguish as a, as, as a woman in labor. But for the righteous, this is the second reaction, the righteous, they do not fear in terror. They do not lash out in hatred or in anger or in violence because the grace of God has subdued their sinful nature so much so that the presence of God in Christ in the midst of his people is not a source of terror, but it's a source of the utmost joy. And as they contemplate the towers of Jerusalem, its ramparts, its walls, its citadels of the heavenly Jerusalem, they not only look upon a building of brick and mortar, but they look ultimately upon the church of Jesus Christ. We cannot behold the brick and mortar of ancient Jerusalem, but we can behold, if you will, the brick and mortar of God's faithfulness to his church throughout the ages. 
Whether we're talking about God's mercy that he showed to Adam and Eve, whether it's calling Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, his mercies to Isaac and to Jacob, to David, to David on the heels of his adultery and his murder against Uriah the Hittite, or Solomon as he reaches out and he pours out his wisdom upon him, And in spite of his sin, he is still his child. This is not to say that Solomon's sin goes unchecked. No. But God's faithfulness does not dissipate. It does not fade. Whether we're talking about his truth-telling through the prophets, through the apostles, uh, the church fathers, the faithful saints in the Middle Ages, the 16th century reformers, Beloved, there is a scarlet thread of God's love that stretches all the way from the very beginning, the moment after the fall, and that reaches all the way to you. And so this is why, in this vein, the psalmist characterizes God's love as he thinks and contemplates about the structure and the architecture of Jerusalem and the temple. Verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. If it is God's people throughout the ages that constitutes his final dwelling place, have you given thought to God's steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people from Adam and Eve all the way to you? Have you given thought to the ways in which he has cared for you, first and foremost in your salvation in Christ? Have you given thought to the fact that God has given you eyes to see, that he's given you a compliant heart, that your desire is to please him and not to flee in terror? Have you given thought to every single moment of your life has been under the providential care and the watchful eye of God in Christ so that no single event, no fraction of a second, no single instance in your life has ever been outside of the purview of God's mercy and grace. I think the New Testament counterpart to this idea is Paul's powerful reflection upon God's love for the church as he waxes poetically in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, as he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? As the world strikes out in anger, as things don't go their way, as they vandalize churches, as they make threats against the church, and they accuse us of hatred because we don't go along with a cultural progressive agenda, do those words give you comfort? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who has declared you righteous in the presence of his throne on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ through grace alone, through faith alone. Who is to condemn? The world? No, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. It is Jesus Christ who intercedes on our behalf at this very moment. 
It is Christ's intercession that are the ramparts, that are the citadels, that are the strong towers of Zion. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is Christ who is our fortress. He is the fortress of Zion. He is its citadel. He is its ramparts. He is the strong tower. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of this creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We are doing the very thing that the psalmist has called us to do as we at this moment, the temple of God, are giving thought, praise, and words of thanksgiving to God's faithfulness in the midst of his temple. Beloved, the psalmist ultimately calls us to survey the beauty and the grandeur of Zion. He says in verses 13 and 14, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, Consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. God's faithfulness and love in the past is a living promise for us in the present and for the future. So walk through Zion and consider her ramparts. Consider her citadels. Consider her strong towers. And recount God's faithfulness to yourself. In those moments when you think that God may have forgotten you, tell of God's faithfulness in Christ to your children. It should be something of which we never grow tired of saying. And tell of God's faithfulness in Christ to your brothers and sisters. Again, as we read in verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. May it be said so of us, the living temple founded upon Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have included us as living stones within the walls of Zion, the new Jerusalem, the, the, the heavenly temple, and that you have come down to us. You have brought Zion to us in Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would cause us to walk the streets of Zion in our hearts and minds by faith as we consider the strong towers of Christ's love, as we consider the ramparts of his faithfulness, as we consider the stones of his strong temple and walls, of the love that he has shown us by loving, loving us, living for us, dying for us, and being raised for our justification. 
Oh, Father, help us to take shelter in Christ and in Christ alone. And may we recognize that the anger, the hatred, the violence, the terror, the fear that we see in the, in the greater world, O oh Lord, is simply the natural reaction that sinners have to the holy presence of Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, for those people. We pray that you would convict them of their sin, that your spirit would fall upon them and cause them to repent. But at the same time, O Lord, we rejoice that indeed Zion is a strong fortress, that Christ has, has, is, and will protect us, and that your faithfulness is not bound up in any one earthly city, but rather is bound in heaven itself come down in Christ. Fill our hearts with praise for Zion. Help us to remember where our citizenship lies. And may we always take shelter behind her strong walls, the strong walls of the gospel of Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.